Jude 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we have turned our attention towards your word, particularly here in the book of Jude, and we pray that you would meet us here, that you would help us to gain a great understanding of what you have said, and that you would show us in our lives and in our hearts how we must turn them, change them, get them into conformity with what your word says. We pray, Lord, for your help this morning as we seek to do this in the power of your spirit and by your grace. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So we've arrived at the main theme The main purpose of this brief letter of Jude already, just in this third verse, Jude gets right to the point. Contend for the faith. The Lord Jesus Christ is calling churches like ours to contend for the faith through uh, his letter here. Uh, It's not uh, just the pastor's job to contend. It's not even... Uh, a calling reserved just for the elders or the deacons of a particular church. It is the responsibility of each church member to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And the faith is not just a collection of beliefs. It's not just a a few key propositions that we must uh, make sure we are teaching accurately. It is a way of living. It is also referring to our behavior. It's how we, how we think, speak, work, and play. God's Word is saying here that being a Christian means that you belong to a local body of believers and that you work together in that local body to contend for the faith. That is, you actively strive to to keep what the church teaches and and how the church lives in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that is the main argument uh, of these verses and what we will be focused on in our message this morning. Uh, That main theme again, it is the responsibility of each congregation to keep their teaching and living in accordance with the faith that Jesus taught. If you have uh, a bulletin and have the sermon notes uh, insert in there, you'll find that main theme written there on the top of that, of that half sheet of paper. So Jude shows us that faithful teaching must go together with faithful living. Um, we'll spend the majority of our time uh, this morning looking at this great appeal of the apostle Jude here to contend for the faith so that we can get a good understanding of what we are being called to do. And we'll then spend just a little time on the problem of ungodly teachers in the church and on the danger of tolerating ungodly teaching within the church. So that's where we're heading this morning. 
Uh, but first again, the church must contend for the true gospel there in verse 3. Uh, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, sometimes things come up that must be addressed before you can discuss anything else, before you can do anything else. Uh, certain things must take priority, and it can cause you to change your plans. Uh, in the first year of my ministry at the church that I served in Iowa as uh, their pastor, I, I received a phone call uh, from a very concerned church member. Uh, her husband was not happy with me. He was not happy with me. And the call came in early on a Monday morning, and so I quickly realized after taking the phone call that whatever else I had originally planned for that day had to be set aside, and I needed to pay this man a visit and listen to his concerns face-to-face. It was a, a call to action for me. My relationship with him had to take priority over the other business that I had planned for that day. And that is the same decision that Jude makes here in this letter. He had originally planned to write a letter of encouragement to this congregation with the theme, he says, of the letter being, as he puts it, our common salvation. Which is a great theme, which would have made a great letter. But something else came up and took precedence over that. Another need arose and took priority over the subject of the letter that he had planned to write. It was an urgent need for the church to address. It took priority even over a letter that that may have provided further teaching or explanation of the gospel of their salvation. Jude says here that he found it necessary uh, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we'll take a, a brief look at what the faith is that Jude is calling the congregation to contend for, what it will mean for them to contend for it and for us, and why we must continue to contend for the faith today. So first, uh, what is the faith that we are to contend for? Well, notice that Jude doesn't provide us with an explanation that, that outlines the various points of the body of teaching that the faith includes. He is, he is confident that the believers that he's writing to know exactly what he is referring to. What he does say directly about it in this passage is that the faith is complete and that it encompasses more than just points of doctrine. It also points to a way of living. So the faith is complete because it was once for all delivered to the saints. Now the saints here does not refer to just the apostles or to just a few early Christians who were so devoted and so holy that they were blessed by God to perform miracles. The saints here are those set apart by God. They are God's people. They are those who have come to know Jesus Christ by faith and who now identify themselves with him. We call them Christians, believers. Jude and the other apostles in the New Testament call them saints. 
The faith has been once for all delivered to them, Jude says. It is the message about what God has done in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the faith. It is what we refer to mainly as the gospel. It is the teaching of Jesus and then his apostles on the significance of who he was, what he accomplished, and what he has promised for all who believe in him. We could turn to Romans this morning and see probably the, the, the greatest exposition of the faith that we have in our scriptures, or we could also see it outlined in First and Second Corinthians, in Galatians, in Ephesians, in Philippians or Colossians, or the letters of Timothy and Titus, or, or Peter's letters, which were all explanations of what we see happening in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, in other words, it is, it is the message of man under condemnation, deserving of God's wrath for our sinful rebellion against God, but then God sent his son who took on human flesh and lived a completely faithful life of obedience, fulfilling the law of God on our behalf, and then was condemned and crucified and died in our place, making atonement with God for our sin. And then he rose again from the dead for our justification before God. And now, as the New Testament teaches throughout its books, now whoever believes in him may be saved from God's judgment and may be covered with Christ's righteousness before God, both now and forever. And Christ will also return to the earth to display his glory, to defeat all of his enemies once and for all, and bring about the consummation of all of God's promises to his people. That's the faith. What good news for guilty sinners like us. What an amazing work of salvation God has already accomplished and has promised that he will fulfill for us. That's the faith. That is something we ought to contend for. But the faith that, that Jude is referring to is more than that. It, it does not just include this body of truth to believe, but, but also a way of life. Uh, the gospel doesn't just change our standing with God, but it, it transforms us. It transforms the way we live before others in this world. So, so when we think or speak of the faith, do we include what the faith demands? That is, a life lived in faith. What effect should believing the gospel have on a person's life? Well, the apostles believed and taught that it must have a transforming effect on the life of a believer. And that if it didn't, well then, they probably did not receive the faith. They probably did not receive the true gospel. In Romans 1.5, Paul refers to it as the obedience of faith. In, Timothy, uh, I'm sorry, in Titus 1.1, Paul calls it the faith which accords with godliness. And, of course, Jude's brother James. Jude's brother James, in his letter, writes, Faith, apart from works, is dead. There's no good works. If there's no godliness in the life, then there's, there's no faith. The faith is not there. 
And the Apostle Peter, in his first letter, refers to the believer's response to trials as the tested genuineness of your faith. That is, are the believers still living in obedience to the gospel even when they're being persecuted and tempted to forsake it and just go back to the ways of the world, which would save them from being persecuted? You know, for Jude and, and all the apostles, the faith is not merely just a list of propositions. When defined fully, it includes the life-transforming activity of God in the hearts of believers. That is complete obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what God's doing in the hearts of those who have the faith. Now, do, do, do Christians still sin? Yes. No Christian obeys Christ perfectly in everything in this life, but there will be a noticeable change. It's called repentance. As Paul argues for it in Ephesians 5, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Rather than having your conversations with one another be filled with falsehood and gossip, Believers whose lives have been changed by Christ, by the faith, will speak the truth with his neighbor and say what is good for building others up as fits the occasion and may give grace to those who hear. They will put off the old self and be renewed in the spirit of their minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is the faith once for all, delivered to the saints. Now, as you're probably well aware, this, this faith that we're talking about this morning that the Jude is referring to is an unpopular message in our day. Telling people that they are wrong in what they have believed life is all about is not considered to be too friendly. Uh, proclaiming to others their need for repentance and that they must depend fully on the work of someone else to save them is offensive in our culture, especially when that work that was done to save them was the work of God's Son being crucified on a cross, bleeding and dying, and then rising from the dead. So the church has been and continues to be in our day tempted to let go of the faith. tempted at least to let go of those unpopular parts of the faith. We feel that temptation, especially today. Therefore, the word of Christ through Jude here calls us to contend for the faith. Contend. Contend. It is a strong word, meaning to exert intense effort. The Greek word was usually applied to athletic contests of training, especially for wrestling. So Hanson family, listen up for wrestling here. Uh, if you've ever, ever witnessed or experienced for yourself the, the amount of training and self-discipline that wrestlers go through in order to be successful, then, then you know this is a strong word. Intense physical workouts ultra-competitive man-on-man sparring matches on the wrestling mats, not to mention 
working out and dieting like crazy in order to make weight. Every wrestler knows that if he just shows up for his match without any preparation or practice, it's over before it even starts. He'll be easily overmatched on the mat. And this verb is also, it's also an ongoing infinitive, meaning it's something that we are being called to do continuously. It can, be, it can be translated, contend and keep on contending for the faith. Jude here is telling us that if the faith is to remain in our churches, if our children are, to, are going to know and follow the faith, if disciples are going to be made through our ministries, then it is going to require ongoing effort, exertion, intentional work, on our part, we must contend for the faith. We must struggle and exert the effort that will be required to faithfully teach and train others in the gospel. It will not just happen on its own. One Bible teacher has, has argued, I think wisely, uh, one generation believes and proclaims the gospel, and then the tendency is for the next generation is to then just assume the gospel. That is, they assume that everyone in the church already knows the gospel, they've heard the gospel, they know what that's all about, and so they turn their attention towards other things on the periphery, maybe important things, valuable things, but not the gospel, not, not the main thing, not the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. And when that happens, then the generation that follows will end up denying the gospel. Losing the gospel. Rejecting the gospel. And lifting up these other things as being most important. So how many churches in our country are living within that third generation today? Or are even having multiple generations like that of denying the gospel? So one key question for you this morning is, do you know the gospel. Do you know the faith? Are you living the gospel? Are you living the faith? It's Father's Day, so I'll just encourage our dads. Dads, are you teaching the faith to your children? By God's grace, may we never assume the faith, but rather faithfully contend for it. Secondly, uh, verse 4 First part of verse 4, ungodly teachers will creep into the church. Ungodly teachers will creep into the church. For Jude says, verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. So here in verse 4, Jude shows us why he had this sense of urgency to write this letter uh, as he did here. He'd been made aware that certain people had crept in to the church, unnoticed, he says, who were nothing but trouble. He describes what they did as deceptive. They, they, they must have, have hidden their true character and motives by acting like faithful, God-fearing believers. Uh, they put on a good act for the other believers and, and won their trust, but then eventually revealed themselves as false teachers and hypocrites. This wording here makes it sound like these folks were not just visiting this local church, it's not like they were just passing through, but they had joined their fellowship. They had been received and accepted into the recognized membership 
of this local body. And so Jude is calling the believers to do something about it. They, they must contend for the faith. They must address this problem. He describes them in two ways initially here. First, he writes, they are people who long ago were designated for this condemnation. This way of de- describing these troublemakers may be a bit unnerving. We'll see more of what he's talking about in the coming weeks as we cover verses 5 through 16. But what he's basically saying is that first, this isn't a surprise to the Lord. He knows who these guys are. He knows what they would be doing. And number two, their behavior is a sign of their own condemnation. They were showing themselves to be opponents of Christ rather than part of his body. As Paul declared in Galatians, Uh, chapter 1, about anyone who would dare seek to lead Christ's people astray. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a, a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And he repeats that condemnation in in verse 9 of Galatians 1. Let him be accursed, that is, let him be damned to hell. If they are trying to lead the saints astray, They're showing forth that they are to be condemned by God. The second description that's given is a bit more general. He describes them as ungodly people. Although the church may have been initially fooled by these men, Jude certainly is not. He doesn't call them just poor, confused souls. He doesn't say they're they're nice guys who are just mistaken in their beliefs. No, he calls them what they are. They are ungodly. They are dangerous. And as we'll see in the the coming weeks, Jude is confident that God will deal with them. Jude's purpose here is to appeal to the church to contend for the faith rather than allow these folks to lead the church astray. The prophet Isaiah gives us a very helpful description of those who practice ungodliness, who are ungodly. In Isaiah 32 verse 6, God's word says there, For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. So once again, we see the connection between the true gospel teaching and faithful gospel living. The ungodly will not only be those who do dishonorable things, but they will also, it says, speak folly. They will not only show that they are ungodly by their sinful ways through which they're living and how they neglect to show mercy and kindness to those in need, but they will also, it says, utter error concerning the Lord. That is, they will teach a false gospel. They will teach things that are not true to what God's word reveals. So as Paul puts it in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but deny him by their works. If you watch their works, you will see where they stand with God. So churches must be aware that ungodly people will seek to enter its membership. This is why church membership must be reserved for those who are true believers and who can demonstrate that they are true believers, not just by what they say they believe, 
not just by their testimony of faith, giving mental assent to the beliefs of the church, but, but by demonstrating that they are following Christ faithfully in their lives. That's why it's important for churches to get to know those who are seeking membership and important for those seeking membership to get to know those in the church to see whether or not the church is godly and following Christ. So that's why, that's why there's a, a process for membership in our congregation, which includes a membership class where we teach our beliefs and expectations for members. Uh, there's an application to fill out and then an, an interview with elders prior to a congregational vote so that we can be as sure as we can uh, that those entering into membership are those who are born again to a new life with Christ as Lord. And that process takes time. It's intended to take time. So we can get to know one another. We can, we can observe our lives. And it's the responsibility of every church to contend for the faith by, by, by making sure we have a church membership made up of genuine Christians. The consequence of not being careful about our membership are dire, as we'll see next in our passage. So next, next point here, verse, uh, uh, verse 4. Tolerating false teaching leads to diminishing moral standards and a denial of Jesus Christ as Lord. Second part of verse 4, but I'll read the whole verse again. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So here's where we see this connection between what we believe and how we live most clearly. We see that through the understanding of Jude and the rest of the apostles, one's teaching is directly connected to how one lives. Jude doesn't point out the errors of what these ungodly people were teaching. He instead points directly at how they are living. We can gain an understanding of what they were teaching by how they were living. You can tell a lot about what someone believes by how they live. Uh, orthodoxy, that is right or faithful teaching, will lead to orthopraxy, which is right and faithful living. And false teaching will then lead to false living or immoral living. It also works the other way around. You begin to live immorally, and then your teaching will also become immoral as well, or false as well, to defend or justify your living. So Jude says th these people are challenging the faith in two ways here, that they were misappropriating the grace of God, and they were casting off Christ's authority over them. They were perverting or changing the grace of God into sensuality. That is, they were arguing that because of God's grace that has been won for us through Jesus Christ, it's perfectly acceptable to indulge in sensuality or to indulge in the sins of sexual immorality since, well, we are now forgiven in Christ. We are not under law, but under grace. That then will, of course, lead to a refusal to submit to Christ as Lord, for it's the word of Christ that calls people to a different way of life, to a holy way of life, to a life of casting off the deeds of darkness and walking in the light. So once again, you know, brothers and sisters, we come face to face with a word from God 
written to a group of Christians 2,000 years ago that is perfectly relevant for what we are experiencing in our day. We live in a permissive time. Sensuality seems to be the Lord of our day, the Lord of our culture, and more and more so in churches. We are, we are subject to the same temptations to cast off the restraints of the law, to, to, to go ahead and indulge in sensuality, thinking God's grace will be able to cover us from our sin. I mean, how many of us have ever had the temptation in our hearts you're trying to convince ourselves that we, we deserve to, to indulge a little in this. We deserve to indulge a little in pornography. We deserve to, to indulge a little in, in lustful thoughts. It's not hurting anyone. Or just, just linger a little longer you know, watching that movie scene portraying sensuality. Or that, that video we've just been sent or recommended by one of our friends. It's okay. God will forgive me. I'm under his grace. We must be aware of that. We must be aware. God did not send his only son to the cross so that we could freely indulge in immorality without consequence. That sin and wickedness leads to death. These are the works of godlessness and will come under God's condemnation. Jude is going to be emphasizing that in the next three paragraphs. It's disastrous when we ignore God's word. We may live in a, in a permissive time in our society, but God sent his son to rescue us out of that destructive way of life. Christ came to set us free, and we can only be free if we come under his lordship, if we recognize that he is Lord, that he is our master, that he has authority over us, and we submit our lives under his authoritative word. Sensuality may be the Lord of our day in this world, but the question for each of us will be, do we submit to that Lord? Or do we submit to Christ? We must contend for the faith, or as the NIV puts it, the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. The Lord has entrusted it to us. And by the way things are going in, in, in our society, Christians will contend for the faith by just simply doing things that we might think are pretty simple and basic. Yet compared to our society, compared to the, to the direction our culture is moving in and moving very quickly, these things will stand out as radical, as counter-cultural, counter as, as, as strange. Things like not killing our unborn children. Things like not moving in with our boyfriend or girlfriend and sharing a bed with them. Things like just getting married. Just, just getting married and having multiple children and, and raising them to fear the Lord. That will be considered strange and radical, the way that our culture is moving. 
We will contend for the faith by loving and showing respect for people for who they really are, who, who God has really created them to be as male and female in his image. And for judging people by the content of their character and not just by the color of their skin. Radical, I know. But in our culture, in the direction it's moving in, it is. We will show others that we are part of another kingdom. We are not submitting to this culture as Lord, to sensuality, to the sexual revolution, to whatever's going on in Washington. We are submitting to another king, to Jesus Christ and his word as our authority.